Okay, so we are on chapter 6, um, and the topic is man. Uh, now, that doesn't mean males, that means humanity. Um, and it's on page 59 in your books. Um, again, the, the, the Baptist faith and message is just a statement. It's not this whole book. It's the little bold statements at the beginning of each chapter. That, that's the Baptist faith message. And then all the other writing is just helping you kind of understand what, what's being said there. Um, it is, again, a statement of faith, um, but it takes the... The, uh, the path, I guess you'd say, of a systematic theology. And so it, it talks about one topic, and usually that topic leads to another, leads to another, and on down the line. And so we've covered God. Um, and when we're thinking about theology, theology is the study of God, but it is also study of God in relation to man. So we know things about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We need to know... God's design, God's plan, God's purpose for us. That way we can then go forward. And so after learning about God, we learn about man. And then there are some things that that opens up that we begin to talk about afterwards. Uh, so first, let's talk about man. So let me read you uh, the, the actual statement here uh, at the beginning on, on page 59. It says, man is the special creation of God made in his own image. He created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an, environmental, and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Okay, so as we get into this, um, what we can see right away is that the Bible's pretty clear about man. We are not an accident of evolution. Um, we are not just one of the other creatures that God has made. We're special. We are the special creation of God, made in his own image. Um, and this is not just words that people have written down. This is actually what the Bible says. So the quote at the bottom there, Genesis 1.27, says, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So uh, we are that special creation of God, that one thing that is set apart. So if you are familiar with the creation narrative, Genesis chapter 1 details everything that God made, and man is part of that. But even in Genesis chapter 1, which is very much a summary, not like a, a detailed explanation of everything, 
Even in that summary, it is obvious that man is different than everything else that God made. But then, when you get to chapter 2, the narrative becomes a lot more, um, instead of just factual statements, it becomes a little bit more like prose, telling a story. And in that story, it tells us about the creation of man and all the things that God went through in order to make a good place for mankind. Remember, it says not only did God create man, but he gave him dominion over the earth, so all the animals and, and all the world. And he went through and named all the, the, the different animals, and there was not one that was found suitable to be a helper for man. So then God created female. So we get kind of the expanded version of how God created the male and female, and that there was a purpose for both the male and the female, that God wanted everything to be according to his created pattern, so we see from the very beginning that this creation is special. Now, the first thing uh, that we probably need to talk about for just a minute is what does it mean to be made in God's own image? What does that actually mean? So there are people that say that means that we look or that we are shaped in some way like God. Um, remember the words of Jesus. The Lord is spirit. Those that will worship him will worship him in spirit and truth. God does not necessarily look in physical appearance like a human. That's, that's, not, that's not what this means. You know, other people might think um, that the, I guess you'd say the, uh, the image of God is the ability to, to reason or to rule. Is God a ruler? Yes. So does that mean that we are the rulers? Does that mean that we're in control or in charge? And, and is that the image of God? Well, yes, we were given dominion over the earth, but that's not the image of God. That's, that's not what is the image of God in us. Um, what about our ability to think? Um, specifically, our, our ability, when you think about the animal kingdom, there are animals that can, in some ways, communicate. Um, there are animals that can show affection, um, and even in some cases, kindness, uh, but intellectual reasoning, like multi-step thinking, that kind of thing, the higher reasoning, we, we haven't seen that in the animal kingdom yet. That is something that is unique to humans. So is that the image of God in mankind? Well, not necessarily. The image of God in mankind is our spiritual capacity, our ability to have a relationship with God. That is, that is what that is. That is what gives us that connection. So all of the creatures that God made, they are wonderful. In fact, he says they are good. And I think it's worth stating that when God says something is good, that means a whole lot more than when we say it's excellent. So if you have a meal tonight, you eat it and you think, man, that was, that was good. We don't mean good the way God means good. When God says good, he means perfect. He means complete. He means that it is, is, is both good in its appearance and in its nature, meaning that it is righteous. So when God said something is good, that had a lot of meaning tied up in it. And when God created Adam and Eve, when God created mankind, he said that it was good. That is us, the, the image of God. In fact, when he created Adam and Eve, he didn't just say it was good. What did he say? Very good. He, he, he expanded upon that. And so we have to understand that, that we are the crown jewel, the, 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 the pinnacle of creation. What does that tell you about the value of life from a biblical standpoint? Life is incredibly valuable, isn't it? 
It, it, it is valued by God. What God sees as valuable, we must see as valuable. There are so many things that we elevate to a position of value that God sees as rubbish or some lower thing altogether. Have y'all heard the preacher joke about the rich man that died, wants to take a suitcase to heaven? Heard that joke? Well, there was this man that he was very wealthy. He had followed God all of his life. And um, he began praying as he knew he was about to die. His time was coming to an end. He began praying and he was asking God, God, I want to bring something with me to heaven. He, I want to bring a suitcase with me to heaven. And God received that prayer, and, you know, and, you know God's immediate answer was, no, you don't bring anything with you. You, you, you come, you know, just as you are. Um, but after a lot of retrospect, this man was a very righteous man. He had followed God all of his life, so God allowed him to bring one suitcase with him. Well, the man had all kinds of really expensive golden baubles, things that he really loved, that he really appreciated, and so he put them in that suitcase, and and he had them bury them. When he died, he had them bury him with the suitcase. Well, he dies. He goes up uh, to the pearly gates there. He meets St. Peter, and he comes walking up with a suitcase. And the man's, and St. Peter says, well, you're on the list, but we don't let people bring anything in here. That's just not okay. And he says, no, 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 I have an arrangement with God. You check with God, and you'll find that I'm able to bring the suitcase in. Well... Uh, St. Peter calls God up and God says, yeah, I told him he could bring a suitcase in, but I need to know what he's bringing in here. So you have to look at that suitcase and see what it is. Well, St. Peter opens up the suitcase, sees all the gold, he scratches his head for a minute and doesn't really think anything about it. He closes the suitcase, zips it up and goes back to the phone, calls God and says, God, I think we're okay. He's just bringing in a load of pavement. What we understand is that we value God, we value gold as a high value thing. But the Bible tells us that that is the pavement in heaven. Think about how many people have lived and died for gold. You know, I think, I think the, the history teacher in me thinks about like the gold rushes, when you think about the gold rushes that happened in America in the 1800s, and, and what people sacrificed, and, and, and the lives that they would live just to go out there and maybe find some gold. And, and think about the number of times probably that gold might have been found by one person, and they were immediately killed by someone else just to, just to take that value. And that is nothing. But God highly values man, highly above everything else. And how many times have other things been elevated above the life of mankind? And we have to recognize that that is not biblical, whatever it might be. So when you start having the debates about abortion and people say, well, it's you know, convenient for the mother or it might be necessary for the mother. If you have those different debates, what we have to recognize is that life is valuable to God. It is more valuable than convenience. It is more valuable than reputation. It is more valuable than whatever it is that someone thinks they're going to lose by having a child. Life is God's gift. It is important. It is what He Himself has given to us and it is precious. And so we have to recognize it that way. You know, there are a lot of people um, that would say, well, Christians say abortion is bad, but they also support the death penalty. If you want to know why Christians support the death penalty, the reason is, is the, the Bible actually has laws in it. And some of those laws, when you break them, the Bible prescribes the death penalty. The Bible also tells us that God has given the sword to the government. And so the government has the authority, based on their laws, they have the authority to execute 
criminals, not just kill people in general. So it is a whole different conversation. So people say, but Jesus said to turn the other cheek. You know, G Jesus said to forgive, and that is a, a personal moral. And that is something that we individually must do. We must be willing to forgive. We must be willing to turn the other cheek. We must be willing to let ourselves be taken advantage of. But when it comes to the government, when it comes to governing authority, they must keep the peace. They must punish criminals the way that they're supposed to. And so there is a big difference there. And, and everybody really knows that. They just want to pretend that they don't know that so they can try to win an argument. There is a big difference between a child who has not yet taken a breath, who has not had an opportunity to live, and someone that is take, that has voluntarily taken someone else's life. That's a whole different conversation, and we all know that. We all know the difference between an addition to society and a menace to society. And, and that's really where that argument ends. So, yes, life is precious. It, 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 is, it is wonderful, um, and it is valuable. And it is because God created us in his own image. That means that each individual has the opportunity to have a relationship with God. Adam and Eve were created with a relationship with God. As we're going to see as we go through this, that relationship was destroyed and it had to be rebuilt. But we, are, we come in with that ability. We come in with that um, possibility. So let's look at the bottom of page 61. There's some true false, true false questions there. Let's just see if we can get these right. Don't look at the bottom sentence. It's the cheat sheet. Humans are both physical and spiritual beings. True, true. Uh, our bodily needs remind us of our constant dependence on God. True, okay. Number three, the soul is the inner inclination toward sin. False, no. People have an innate hunger for God. True, true. We should give top priority to the body. False. Spirituality means renouncing physical pleasures. No. The conscience and the soul are identical. False. Number eight. Uh, we should care for the body but not worship it. True. The soul is our spiritual capacity and inner knowledge. True. Okay, so those are some things just to kind of know about us, about our body, um, and the fact that we are made in God's image. Let's talk about this male-female thing for just a minute and just understand um, that God put that in there a very, very long time ago. Um, and it has been established for a very, very long time. God decided that there would be males who were born as males and there would be females who were born as females. And he didn't make any other provisions. He made that plain. He made it clear. He also made it plain and clear that relationships, love, romantic relationships are going to be between one man and one woman. He has made that clear in his word. Without having to get into the details, he just simply said it. Just like he said, the sun is going to rise in the morning and it's going to set in the evening. I made a man and I made a woman. It's just it's some, some of the facts of creation. It's part of this information that God gave us at the very beginning of human history. These are the things that he did. And part of it is, you know, the, 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 the gender that, it, that is established and that is set. Now, 
If you do listen to the world today, they'll say, well, gender is a social construct. Well, the same people would say religion is a social construct. I believe that God gave us his word. And that is not a social construct. It is divine communication. And in his word, he communicates what is true. And to God, truth is man and woman, not man-ish or woman-ish or some crisscross of all of that. That is what God has presented as truth. Now, if we are believers and we trust God, we're going to believe that. Now, what happens to the rest of the world? What happens to the rest of the world that believes that there's, there's a whole lot of change possible, that, that gender is fluid, that all these other things can change? What about the world? Well, the reason we believe that men are men and women are women is because of the Bible. You're not going to convince people that men are men and women are women until you convince them of the truth of the Bible. About the only way nowadays to convince somebody about the truth of the Bible is first to bring them to Jesus Christ and work out from there. So, does that mean that the church should never state what we believe about gender? No, that's not what that means. We should state that. Corporately, we should state what we believe. But on an individual basis, if somebody wants to argue with you about gender or about you know, who people should be with and all those things, Bring that to Jesus. Bring that conversation around to Jesus and tell them about Jesus our Savior. That other conversation is for after they know Jesus. That, that, is, that is the whole, that's kind of the quintessential thing of you go to the doctor when you're sick. You go to Jesus when you're still in your sin. He cleanses you. He sets you right. All those things we've been studying in Romans about all the ways that God makes us righteous, well, we weren't righteous and God made us righteous. And so if, if we probably had bad, wrong thinking as well, just, just like people today that are out in the world have bad and wrong thinking, we had bad and wrong thinking also. And so God's going to wash that away. He's going to fix that. He's going to change it. And so that's what we have to recognize is that God made us male and female. And that conversation that is going to be had within the church not necessarily, if, you know, there's no point for Christians to go to a, some kind of rally that people are having and tell them that they're wrong. There's no point in that. Now, we might go there and offer them cold water and, and, and tell them about Jesus, but we don't need to go there and just tell them that they're wrong. Somewhere, somewhere in there, they know they're wrong. Somewhere in there, they already know the truth. Okay, so the fall from innocence. So when we think about Genesis, you think about one, God created all these things. You think about two, uh, Adam and Eve, dust to the earth, rib of Adam. But when you think about Genesis chapter 3, we think about the fall. We think about Satan uh, in the form of a serpent. We think about him challenging and already changing or attempting to change the word of God. That's what we think about. Um, but what we have to recognize is that as tempting and beguiling as the serpent was, it was still human choice. It was human choice. It was the responsibility of Adam and Eve to obey the law that God had given them. They didn't have a bunch of laws. They didn't have, if you've ever, if you've ever tried to read uh, the Bible from cover to cover, you, you know, Genesis, you get through some really good stories. And it's really interesting 
Exodus, that's okay until we start trying to build a tabernacle. But then you get into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and it's law after law after law after law. It gets hard to read that and to really stick with it. Adam and Eve had a law. You shall not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, dying you shall die. That was their command. So they had to don't eat of that tree. Well, they had fruit on every tree hanging around. They could have anything they wanted. But that tree was the one that was forbidden. Now, people debate about what kind of fruit it was. That absolutely doesn't matter. All that matters is that God forbid it. It could have been apples. It could have been figs. Um, could have been coconut. Coconut isn't that good anyway, is it? It could, it could have been who knows what. We don't know what it was, but what we do know is that God forbade it. And they chose. It was, a, it was a human choice to partake of that sin. Now, I want to go back to page 61 and, and, and talk about this for a minute because I want you to see what we as Southern Baptists say. Um, so it says, through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. So this is part of what was communicated in Romans here, where Adam and Eve fell, but then every person after Adam and Eve, they were born with a tendency to sin. They were born in an environment that inclines you towards sin. And doesn't this world incline us towards sin every which way possible? It's like sin is downhill. It just, it just seems like you know, downhill is easier to go and sin is that direction. But, but righteousness is uphill and we've got to work and we've got to be intentional about that. You know what you'll never do? You'll never fall uphill. You just won't do it. Now I have seen somebody fall up steps and I thought that that would be a safe example for the rest of my life but I've seen somebody do it so I won't say that anymore. But he didn't fall up a hill. And I just don't think that we fall uphill, but we can fall downhill. And so when we think about this, this world, it is, it is inclined to lead us into sin. Sin's the easier thing to do. Sin, sin is easy. Righteousness is hard. And that is how, that's, that's part of the effects of the fall. But I want you to notice the next sentence, because this is also very, very important as we get into it. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors, and are under condemnation. So what does Southern Baptists believe about babies that die? What about babies that were aborted? What about little children that die before they have a chance to get saved? What does Southern Baptists believe about that? We believe in something. It's not even stated here. It's definitely not stated in the Bible. But our idea is something called an age of accountability. Like I say, you're not going to find that word written in the Baptist faith and message. You're not going to find that word written in the Bible. But the idea really does come from the Jews, which is essentially the point at which a child reaches moral agency. Moral agency means that the child has the, the, the cognitive abilities to decide right from wrong and understand the consequences of each. Now, that's going to be a different age for nearly every child. You know, some kids are going to understand that at eight and nine years old. And, and I'm not talking about the things where you have to correct them. Like they didn't know it was wrong, you have to correct them. I'm talking about the things where the child can reason out, oh, 
this will lead me down a bad path and this will lead me down a good path. When the child is capable of understanding right and wrong, the consequences thereof, that's when that child has reached the age of accountability. It's a term, again, not in the Baptist faith and message, not in the Bible, but it's just an idea, and it does come from the Jewish culture. So children essentially were considered children until they reached, and they had pretty much, not a hard and fast, but, 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 a, but a pretty dedicated idea of 12 years old. 12 years old was when that child was, was able to understand enough about the Bible, was able to understand enough about life that they were now responsible. And so that was when they really began to be treated as you know, independent moral agents. Child under 12 years old, that child is the responsibility of the parents. The, parent, the child does something, it comes back to the parents. But after that, the child is responsible for their own actions. And so what Baptists believe is that if a child dies in childbirth or, or is miscarried or, you know, the abortions or, or any other thing for, for a child up to the, to the point of moral agency, and again, that is a little different for every child, that child is not condemned. That child is not a transgressor. That, that's what Southern Baptists teach. Now, once that person reaches that, that moral agency, that age of accountability, once they are capable of understanding and, and, and feeling the weight of the consequences of right and wrong, that's when it's time to start having conversations with them about sin and the cost of sin and, and what, what that does for them and how they need to trust in Jesus. That's when the evangelistic process needs to start. And we have seen just from, just, just from I guess you'd say, numbers and surveys and all these things over the years, the sooner you have those conversations, the better the more effective they are. The later you wait, the harder it is. That's why Southern Baptists have always put a major emphasis on things like Sunday school and, and, and vacation Bible school, children's events, because we believe that that's when you really reach kids. Um, because if they get older, they get to be teenagers, they get to be college age or young adult, whatever, you just don't reach them. You just don't get them the same way. So anyway, that's, that's an important thing for us to recognize that that is a, um, I, I, I won't go to, so far as to say it's, distinctly Southern Baptist, meaning only Southern Baptists teach it, but I will say that it is one of those things that we teach that not everybody else teaches. Um, so, so that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. Okay, um, so the fall from innocence, we kind of covered that. Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they fell, and all of humanity kind of was, was drugged down by that sin. We each individually have made our own choice to sin afterwards. Um, but we were all drugged into that state um, through Adam and Eve. Um, restore to fellowship with God. So there will be a lot more conversation about this later, so I'll, I'll try to kind of be a little bit light on some of this, um, but essentially, oh, we're actually almost done, um, but, but, but essentially we could not fix the problem of sin. We could not in any way become righteous once we have been stained by sin, we cannot make ourselves clean. And, and that's the thing that you have to recognize is that, so if, if you have a plate and it gets dirty, it's not going to make itself clean. You, someone else has to come along and clean that plate for it to be clean. Well, what we have to recognize is that sin stains us, much, much like you know, food or something that gets on a plate and makes it dirty and someone else has to clean it because the plate can't clean itself. We cannot clean ourselves. God can write all the laws that he wants to write. And even if we followed all the laws from 
from the point that we got the law until our death, we still wouldn't be clean because the sin was still there. It doesn't matter how, how much righteousness you pile on top of sin, you know, personal righteousness, you know, human righteousness, no matter how much you pile on top of sin, the sin is still there. It's always going to be there, no matter what. So, we needed an outside agency. We needed an outside action to occur. And so, and, and you have to realize that even though sin was human choice, that, that the fall was human choice, God knew it was going to happen. So from before he created humanity, he was already prepared with Jesus, was already prepared with the plan of salvation. And so the Bible tells us that at the right time, Jesus came. Now, this is when Jesus, or this is when God took on the form of man. So when we talk about the image of God, obviously we're talking about like the ability to have a spiritual relationship with God, but Jesus took on the form of a man. We're told that in Philippians chapter 2. That form of a man means that he was us. He was like us. And so if you saw Jesus, and this is evidence as we read the Gospels that so many people didn't recognize him for what he was, you just thought he was another man. You would have to talk to him. You would have to get to know him. You'd have to see him do the things that he was there to do before you recognize this is more than a man. He is more than that. So he became a man in every way that people are. He would get tired. He would get hungry. He faced all the temptations. The Bible even gives us a, a kind of a glimpse into the temptation that he faced when Satan took him out into the, to the desert and took him up to the high place and and all these different things that, that, that Jesus encountered, they are like us. They are what we also face. He was a man. Why is that important? Well, because ultimately the Bible has told us over and over again that sin can't be forgiven without the spilling of blood. Well, in, in the case of sin, it is an eternal offense. And so the only way to pay for it is, is, is eternity. Our blood spilt eternally means we die. We can't be saved if we're dead, right? We can't be saved if we have to die with our lives. And so Jesus, with his righteous blood, paid that price. It had to be man for man, and so that's why Jesus became man. God couldn't just send down someone. He couldn't just choose somebody that was already alive. It had to be God, man for man, and so that's what he did. So he sent Jesus to this earth. He lived a perfect life. Jesus never sinned. He, he, did, he taught, he did miracles, and those things were to help people understand who he was. But the most important thing for us is that he didn't sin and that his death was sacrificial. So that means that he stood in our place. Whereas it was supposed to be us paying that price, it was Jesus. Jesus paid the price for our sins. And so then the message was delivered. The message was delivered through the apostles that if you believe in Jesus Christ, just like we covered this, this, this Sunday, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the gospel. This is what the message was that the, the apostles were sharing. And so this is the way back to righteousness. Now we've explained a lot of this as we went through Romans about what actually happens, where Jesus pays the price 
when a person believes on God that, that legally their status has changed, God goes ahead and has the court case for you when you're saved. And in that court case, He doesn't look at your sin, He looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you justified. And so that is an everlasting ruling from that point forward. That is an everlasting ruling. You are justified. You are forgiven. And so then for the rest of your life, you then belong to God. He, he leads you. He, he places His Holy Spirit in you, what we talked about last week, and, and you live Live a life for Him from that point forward. So that is what restoration, that is how that relationship is restored. So Adam and Eve, they lived in a garden and they walked with God in the cool of the evening. Now, if we fast forward, we know that now we as Christians, um, we live with the opportunity to pray at any time. And a lot of times um, we, prayer is kind of overlooked, but that is an incredible privilege, the way that we pray. So if you, if you were to go and travel to Israel or somewhere like that now and, and watch how the Jews pray, a lot of it is still quoting Scripture. They quote Scripture. Uh, they do this funny thing where they rock so that God knows that they're not asleep, which is very weird to me because God knows these things anyway. So they, they, they pray these, these ritualistic prayers. Um, but God has invited us to talk to Him. Jesus gave us examples of calling God Father, of actually asking him for what we needed. When you look at the, the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, that wasn't poetry. That was the agony of his heart. He was pouring it out before God. That's the example of what we have. That's the kind of prayer that we have access to. That is what we can do. That relationship is restored. So you've got Adam and Eve in the garden talking to God, cool of the evening. You've got now Christians. We have been reconciled to God. We can talk to God at any time through prayer. Well, this thing is going to the point where instead of a garden or, or, or instead of just prayer, we're living in a city with God, physically present with God. That is, that is the end of the story there. So that is when full restoration has been made. So instead of in a garden, we'll be in a city. Instead of talking to God in the cool of the evening, we'll be talking to God anytime because He is there with us. And so that's where this thing is going to a full restoration and even... I'm, you know, you would say even a better situation than, than, than what it was in the beginning. And so what we see is that God's redemption is complete. So that is, that is mankind. So we live, we sin, so we fall away from God. We are brought back to God through the work of Jesus Christ, and we are going to be with God. Now, mankind is a brotherhood. We, we are all on this earth together. Um, there, there is a, a value of life. We talk about that. Um, and that value of life, the understanding of the gospel, the, the understanding of what happens to those who are condemned and do not know Jesus as their Savior, it ought to motivate us. It ought to motivate us to share the message of Jesus Christ. Because just as we needed to hear that message in order to be saved so that we could avoid the condemnation, so that we could be restored to relationship with God, other people need to hear that. You know, I, I count it as a blessing that I grew up in a Christian family so that they, I was brought into church. That wasn't my choice. I mean, kids with a choice probably aren't going to spend one of their two days off from school going to church. That wasn't a choice at that time. My parents took me to church. But in that environment, I learned the gospel. I learned who Jesus was. And that has made a, I mean, it's made all the difference in my life. And I would say that 
for any of us that, that has that same story where we grew up in church, we, we, we learned from an early age, we were able to understand God. But there are people that live in this world that, that weren't brought up like that. They, they, they weren't brought up to know God. They weren't brought up in you know, a church where they were hearing the word of God proclaimed. They were just out on their own. And in that case, it's easy to say, well, look how bad these people have become. You know, Paul reminds the church at one point, such were some of you. He lists off all kinds of sins and such were some of you. What would we have been? What would I have been? What would you have been if you had not become a Christian? How far would you have went? How, how, how low would you have gone? We don't know. You can't answer that question. But what I can say is that we wouldn't be here tonight. We wouldn't be where we are. We would be somewhere else doing something else. But because of God, He has drawn us together. And, and what I would encourage you with is there are people who simply don't know. Yes, there are people that know and they've rejected the truth and, and we need to tell them, but, but we need to move on. But there are people that don't know. There are people that don't know in America. I think it is, is fair to say that America is not a Christian nation in terms of m the majority of people are not actually Christians. Um, and, and I would say that it's, that it's fair to say that America is, for the most part, an unevangelized nation because a majority of people do not know the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They just don't. Um, God has been robbed in this country. People don't know him. They might know some of his messengers or supposed messengers. You know, you've heard that, that a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing is very dangerous. A wolf in shepherd's clothing is even more dangerous. There are a lot of false teachers out there. There are a lot of people that are deadly. And so there are people that are in very popular, very full, very vibrant communities. But they are not churches because they're not preaching the gospel. They meet on Sundays. They sing about God. They talk about different aspects about God, but they don't know him. And let me tell you, that is, that is a burden that needs to be on our hearts, that we declare God. Not that we disparage other churches and say, well, this church isn't doing, you know, or this pastor isn't. And we, don't, we don't have to disparage other people. We just need to tell people about Jesus. He will sort things out. That's all we were ever supposed to do. He said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go be social activists. He didn't say, go be reformers. He didn't say any of the other things that we have thought was so important over the years. We just go make disciples. That's what we do. Jesus sorts everything else out. Well, what questions do you have about this? I'm getting done a little earlier, shorter lesson, I guess. What questions do you have? Next week is salvation. It will not be short. So if I let you out early this week, just remember that for next week. It is not short. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for the time to gather together. We thank you for helping us understand a little bit about us. You made us in your image. You declared us to be very good. We have value because you have given us value. We have purpose because you've given us a purpose. We fail. We, we lost our innocence. We fell away from you. And you sent Jesus to restore us. Those of us that have placed our faith in him, we have been restored. I pray that you help us as 
believers to go out and to declare Jesus to this world. We don't have to be experts on every social issue or every legal issue. We don't have to be experts in anything except Jesus. We see where the Apostle Paul says, I confess to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Let us take that attitude and let us share with a lost world the one thing that can save them. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.